Today, meandering our way out of a minefield of rights and powers and hoping we arrive somewhere. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. Last episode, uh, I introduced a controversy that's been uh, provoked or pushed to the top of the pile uh, in a lot of people's thinking, in higher ed especially. You don't have to be in higher ed, I think, for this to be pertinent, but it's what brought it to my attention. Uh, Because of the Hamas attack on Israel and then Israel's response in the Palestinian territories and the protests that were taking place on campuses around the country, And it just brought to the fore, it didn't introduce something new, but it brought to the fore uh, the debate between people who are advocating for campuses to be places of free speech, which you would think to yourself, well, every place is a place of free speech. I mean, it's in the Constitution, for crying out loud. But the reality is we have lots of limitation on speech in different settings, And public campuses, public college campuses, have become uh, sort of flashpoints for this issue because they're public and therefore shouldn't be limited by, for instance, the things we can do to limit speech at Criswell College, where I'm the president. We don't do this very often. We wouldn't have to do it very often because we have such a unified sense of who we are as a campus and I just mean that we're Christian and we're very, you know, we're, we're, we're built into sort of a specific brand of Christianity and so on. So there's a lot of harmony and sense of agreement before a person even wants to come here. So we don't have to say, well, we're not going to have a student group that advocates for radical Stalinist communism in the United States. I mean, that's just not going to happen here. So it's, it's not an issue for us in that way. In, in, in contrast to that, in public university settings, there's a lot of that, and it's public. There are public funds that make it possible. So on public college campuses and public university campuses around the country, the issue of free speech has become a big deal. And one of the reasons it's a big deal is because of the contest that emerges between free speech and then the groups, the and particular in in particular, the vulnerable groups that are exposed to maybe actual risk, danger, because of what can be incited by some of that free speech, but also other forms of harm that may be inflicted on those vulnerable groups from some of the speech that's exercised. And so you end up with this contest, effectively, between free speech and vulnerable groups. And I brought up this discussion because of what I had read in the Chronicle of Higher Ed recently, and I mentioned that all in the previous episode, and so you can go back and get the background from there. Now, with that all mentioned, where we left off in the discussion last time 
uh, was with the idea of how this could be reflected more broadly in terms of our understanding of law enforcement. And I'm using this as an analogy. It's not exactly the same issue, but it's so closely related that the analogy is pretty tight or pretty significant, I think. And so I was bringing up in the last discussion, and this is how we sort of concluded it, the importance of the rule of law, just as a concept, not as a phrase. I'm going to use it as a phrase in a few moments, uh, a way that we've developed it into a term in our culture, uh, particularly our contemporary culture uh, lately. So I'll use the rule of law again in a moment, uh, slightly differently. But conceptually, the rule of law is so important because it introduces the value of equal protection under the law. And we sort of haggled our way through Leviticus 19 to make the point that there are two different sides to uh, extending equal protection under the law. One side of it being that you learn to care about the vulnerable. And we mentioned that in Leviticus 19, 13 and following by not oppressing your neighbor with whatever ability you have to oppress them. So you don't keep the wages back from the hired worker and you don't curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind and so on, even for a comedy routine, which people do, of course. Anyway, the point is that you don't abuse your power over someone who's vulnerable. And therefore, in a society, we ought to be concerned about somehow maintaining an equal protection under whatever's providing the order of the society. In our case, it's written law that provides that order. And then, but then we we made the point on the other side of that, in the very next verse, it says, but it's it's not because the vulnerable need to have an advantage in society. It's because we want them to have an equal footing in society, but that equal footing is to be legitimately equal. So not only are you not partial toward the poor, but you also, and, and therefore you don't defer to the great, but also you judge everyone in a way that says, if you are disadvantaged, we give you an equal footing in our court in this case because we are practicing the rule of law. But on the other side, if you are advantaged, it's okay. You're going to get a fair hearing in our court. We are not going to punish you just because you're wealthy. Neither are we going to keep you from seeking justice just because you're not wealthy. So we want an equal footing under the law. So there's that part of it as well, protecting the vulnerable, but also remembering that the goal is an equal representation, equal protection under the law. So the nature of laws is where we left off. The nature of the laws that provide that equality is what comes to bear in this discussion about free speech, but also vulnerable people groups. And it's not hard to recognize where this is going. I mean, free speech is for everyone. That's the whole idea. Anyone can say what they want to say. But the opposite is the case with vulnerable people groups. We're saying there are particular groups that have a vulnerability that's not shared equally by everyone. And so we need to provide special protection for some groups, not so they can have a special status because they're special, but so they can stand on an equal footing with everyone else in the society. And you can say, well, well that's just nonsense because once you make them a special group, you're making them special. You're making them unequal. That's ignoring the fact that there are some groups who come into the equation unequal. 
to say that a person who doesn't speak the local language isn't at a disadvantage would just be pretending something that's not true. Uh, And it's the same with so many other cases. And so we can describe them, but I mean, you know, Leviticus 19, it picks out certain abilities, differently abled people, those who can't hear or those who can't see, and says, let's give them an equal footing in our society and not create or sustain barriers to their equal participation. I think the ADA uh, types of regulations and restrictions are a really noble effort on the part of our culture to step in the right direction of saying just because a person uh, can't walk the same way someone else works doesn't mean they shouldn't be able to get into a building or shouldn't be able to to do a job uh, and so on. And I think, you know, the fact that the governor of the great state of Texas is someone who has finally been able to see an equal footing with everyone else uh, shows that there are advantages to that for the whole of society. I'm not even saying you have to love Greg Abbott as governor or disagree with him as governor, but you have to say, what a cool thing that that was not a barrier uh, to him being able to practice his skills and gifts to be able to benefit society in some way. Whatever you, again, whatever you think of his political positions, it's still a good thing that that door was opened. Okay, so all of that said, the nature of laws has this contrast between the universality of equality and the free speech idea on one side and then the protection of vulnerable groups on the other side. And what I mean by that is this. It's in the nature of laws to do a couple of things, and and probably more. It's not like I have a degree in criminal justice. I'm not trying to go down the road of pretending I'm an expert on criminal justice. But, I mean, these things are on the face of it, right? They're just prima facie of the case. So one, under the nature of laws, is that they're written to protect the interest of the society that writes them. A lot of that's tautological. Of course, they protect the interest of the society that writes them. They wouldn't write the laws if it wasn't protecting the interest of the society. And the society that writes them is the only society that could provide the laws. So there you go. So it's sort of built into the nature of what laws are. They protect the interest of the society that writes them. But... If you just burrow down one layer into that idea, then you realize that since they're written by those who have some power, you can't write laws and enforce them if you don't have some kind of power, then they usually protect the interest of those who are in power. It would be almost impossible for them not to do that. And that's not even a a selfish or negative thing. Those who have succeeded in the society are saying, look, this is a good society. There's prosperity and gain to be had here. Let's protect it. That makes sense. It makes sense that people would do that, even in the most noble of attempts. So for the sake of stability in society, and let me just pause and say, you have to have stability in order to have a society. (laughs) Otherwise, you just have a mob or a crowd or something like that. So in order to have a society, you have to have stability. So for the sake of stability in a society, then it's necessary, like required, to preserve the structures that preserve that society. That's the only way you maintain a society. So that emphasis, where you're protecting the structures of society that allow it to continue to exist, this is an important step. That emphasis is what's referred to, and I'm putting this in air quotes, 
law and order. And I mean that as a phrase. It's the law and order side of things, right? And so you can, you can back up from this and see where some of the conflict might arise. And so in terms of introducing the conflict to the other side of why laws are written, which is also a good reason to have laws, which has to do with protecting the vulnerable. We'll get to it in a moment. On the way toward that side of writing laws, you can see how this side, the law and order side, would likely be in conflict with that other side of the purpose of the equality, equal protection under the law. Because, you know, and I'll just use this example, the rise of local police departments, which if you're not aware of, doesn't happen until the mid-19th century, the middle of the 1800s, right? So in the United States and America, police departments rise right during the end of slavery and during the rest of Reconstruction and all the things that follow it. There are no police departments before that. And so that fact that they're coincident with the end of slavery and Reconstruction says a lot about how law enforcement develops over time and what it sees as its primary role or even just uh, a primary expression of its, of its way of enforcing the structures of society. Not an inherently bad thing. Again, you have to maintain stability for a society to exist. And there's, by the way, in, ba- in terms of background, there's a lot to talk about. It would be an entire show by itself, episode by itself, to talk about regional police offices in contrast uh, with, or local police offices in contrast with sheriff's offices. The sheriff's position is a political position. It's been around for a thousand years and has a completely different background and a different way of relating law enforcement to the population because it's a political office than the locally appointed, the locally hired and selected law enforcement office of a municipality or an area or a school. We have a police department at Cruzco College. That is a discussion for a different day. But the police departments that are not political, the offices, and I'm not saying there's not a police commissioner that can be political and blah, blah, blah. But the police departments that are not by their nature political, but instead represent the interest of that municipality or that local control, you can see are, I mean, the name, the the name of the police has to do with the polis, the political structure and maintaining the order of the government, the order of the society that's in that locality, in that municipality. So anyway, whatever. And I think it's important, by the way, uh, all in support of doing everything possible to encourage and uh, maintain healthy police departments. I think the police chief in Dallas has proven just recently how important and valuable good leadership in a police department can be. He seems to be going in a great direction. So anyway, all of that to, to get to this point to say a, a lot of over time in the 19th century, I mean, this is obvious in the 19th century, this is the 1800s, a long time ago, and yet it probably is reflected in some of the things that happen now. A lot of the use of local enforcement mechanisms was for the benefit of who? The most powerful people in the local area, which were at least former slaveholders, or at the time before the Civil War was over, the slaveholders, and to the disadvantage of people who were seeking their freedom. And that's and again, in that day, they were just enforcing the law of the land and so on. 
But that easily translates into the Reconstruction era and Jim Crow era as seeing the black population as the primary target for enforcement efforts and so on. And so you can understand why it might lead naturally to a conflict between maintaining the structures of society that allow it to be stable on one hand and on the other hand, trying actually to advocate for groups that are more vulnerable in that same society. You can see why some of those conflicts might come to bear. So, for instance, the, the, the term law and order is, in the minds of a lot of pe- people of color, a, a dog whistle, a, a way of saying, oh, we're going to keep that population under control. I'm not saying that's what the words mean. I'm not saying it's not what they mean. I'm just saying that is definitely what people of color can hear, not everyone, but a lot of people of color hear when they hear the phrase law and order because they're thinking of the maintaining the structures of society from when it wasn't as integrated as it is now and is trying to be right now. So, for example, uh, there was a PAC, a political action committee, back in the 80s that put out a, an ad, the Willie Horton ad. If you, know, if you know, you know, right? So if you're as old as I am, you remember this commercial. You remember when it came out? It was everywhere. Uh, it was like the flow commercials for Geico now. I mean, it was everywhere uh, and being played all of the time. And it was during the Al Gore and H.W. Bush um you know, contest. And so anyway, the point was that, or, well, I'll say this, Al Gore brought it up in his attempts. I think it was in the Mike Dukakis and uh, H.W. Bush presidential contest. I do remember that correctly. That's who it was. It was, I think, 1988. But uh, anyway, Al Gore had also brought up the issue of Willie Horton before because Michael Dukakis uh, was being criticized by what happened with Willie Horton. So anyway, the point was Willie Horton was this, uh, convict who had been released on a prison furlough program that whatever the home state was had, uh, where prisoners could leave and go and do some things, you know, visit with their family or, you know, whatever, and then had to report back to prison to finish their sentence. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a thing back then that was being tried out and he abused that. It turned into a robbery and rape and assault that he perpetrated while he was out of prison. Obviously a terrible thing, terrible person who did a terrible thing. All of that's easily acknowledged by everybody. But what it became was this famous ad, a turnstile at the exit of a prison where a black man is walking out of the prison freely and then, you know, Willie Horton's picture with his uh, African-American face, you know, stamped up there uh, to emphasize the need for stronger law, law enforcement on behalf of the good people of this country, you know. And so it didn't, it never said black people are being let out of prison. But, you know, the imagery was so potent and it was pretty easy to understand why anyone who was a person of color would respond to that ad and say, well, that's just a dog whistle to say, if, yeah, if you want to just let all the black people out of prison, then elect this guy. And so, uh, you know, and, and H.W. Bush got elected. And by the way, it wasn't H.W. Bush's, uh, George H.W. Bush's ad. It was a political action committee. So I'm not criticizing the family or the, or the political movement or anything like that. But I, but I will say it, it was a pretty loud dog whistle. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Whether it was intended to be that or not, that's certainly how it came across. So you can understand why the two 
are almost inherently in conflict with each other because the structures of society that maintain the stability that make it possible for us to live in a society, those structures are the things that by their nature, by definition, are keeping the vulnerable vulnerable. I don't mean by that. There are evil, you know, standards of you know, double standards that allow the, I'm not even, I'm not saying any of that. I don't think they're ill motivated, but if you're vulnerable in a society, it's because you are somehow excluded from the benefits of power in that society. That's just the nature of being vulnerable. That's what it means. And if that's the case, then maintaining the current structures of that society inherently creates a conflict with those vulnerable populations, regardless of what the motives are. That's just what would be happening. But on the other side, there is a lot of effort that people make to implement laws that protect the vulnerable from the powerful. And you can see that even in the United States Constitution, that the way we're designed is to say, give equal protection to everyone, and we want people to prosper and benefit and so on, but we also want to recognize those who are excluded otherwise and protect them from the, for instance, tyranny of the majority. We want to make sure everyone's included. So, And, and this is an important part of laws. I, I think all of us agree on. It's an important thing that we do with our laws. The emphasis here is with the phrase rule of law. That's when I'm, and I'm separating that because the rule of law conceptually includes both of these things. But in reality, the law and order side of it strengthens the structures that already exist where the rule of law side of it, in air quotes, rule of law side of it, says, you know, we're not going to put a person at a disadvantage. In fact, we're going to take people who are at a disadvantage and we're going to create protections for them that allow them to have some of the benefits that the rest of society sort of automatically has access to. So that emphasis on rule of law with air quotes around it can also lead to problems. It, you know, and and it, and it does inherently lead to a conflict of rights. So for instance, the rights of those who happen to be oppressors, that doesn't mean that they I'm not I don't even care whether they're choosing to be oppressors or not. I don't, I don't care what the, you know, I'm not trying to bring up the politically weighted sense of the word oppressors, you know, or anything like that. I don't care about all the economic oppression is this and that whatever. You can have all the political speeches about it you want. Just the reality that when you have those who have power and they use it to their advantage, then and and who wouldn't? That's what people do then it's to the disadvantage of other people. So if you're in that class, then obviously the rights of that, of that group can be opposed to the rights of those who happen to be among the people who are disadvantaged by the advantages the others have. So that's what uh, often people mean just by using the word oppressed. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying somebody's standing on someone's neck and pronouncing curses over them just the idea of advantages and disadvantages in a society. And it can also lead to a conflict of interest because the, I mean, you can't get around this. The people who are footing most of the law of law enforcement's bill are the people who are most adversely affected. If law enforcement's key effort is to advocate on behalf of the vulnerable, 
I mean, the point of having a lot of resources, you've got this power, you want to use it, you want to keep your advantages, and then you're paying an organization. If you think about the half of the organization that's intended to protect the vulnerable, you're paying the organization to take away your advantage, to give that advantage to someone else. That conflict of interest may not even be consciously recognized, but it's always there, and it's on the news every night. And it's on campuses right now. And so that's what is coming to the fore when you have uh, Palestinian American groups who are advocating on campuses for Israel to stop bombing Gaza and then talking about these things that really do sound sometimes anti-Semitic because they are against Israel. And anything you say against Israel can easily be turned and and in reality can become something that is anti-Semitic. You can say, well, I don't mean it that way, but it still becomes that way. It's like a person telling a joke that's based on race and saying, well, I, I'm not a racist. I just thought it was a funny joke and not realizing what it means to the person of color on whom you're telling the joke. It's the same thing with anti-Semitism. You can say, well, they just cry anti-Semitism every time anybody's against Israel. But you know, if what you're protesting is your university's association with Jewish investors, as if there's something evil about having someone with a Jewish ethnicity invested in your campus, then you're, you're really close to just being a racist, to just being anti-Semitic. And so you can understand why people would respond to this and say, oh, man, this is they say they're the vulnerable people group, but we're the vulnerable people group. In other words, bringing about an inherent conflict uh, that needs to be addressed. So on campuses right now, what we're running into is this, uh, this question. Do we protect the speech rights that people should have to speak freely, the things that they believe, or do we protect the groups that are being endangered, that are being put at risk, or that are being psychologically, and I'll use an exaggerated term, traumatized by hearing these things that are attacking their ethnicity in some way? And so, what, so what, what's been happening on campus, there's a longer background to this. I've mentioned it before in the previous episode. But protecting freedom of speech can be nothing more than preserve. So like in my background, you know, as a Christian and as an evangelical Christian and for a long time as a fundamentalist, you know, in a really radically, you know, committed uh, way to the right of most Christians in my theology and so on, I spent a lot of time doing what I think every believer ought to do, which is just sharing the gospel, just talking to people about Jesus. And so one of the things that we ran into was, are you permitted to, you know, to talk to people about Jesus on this campus or not? And there were places you could do it and places you couldn't do it. And it's like, well, that's weird. I mean, shouldn't we have free speech everywhere? And so sometimes protecting free speech can just be preserving, and most of you who are listening to this would identify with this, preserving the right of evangelism, just the right to share the good news with somebody, right? But that's also kind of a sales thing. So if there's an Amway person standing out there and they're trying to advocate for Amway, are you going to say, yeah, they get to do that too? So I understand the reasoning of people who don't want us to be able to witness to people everywhere and all the time. I still disagree with them. I think, you know, religion is a different thing and being able to talk about it freely 
ought always to be the case. But regardless, you can hear, I mean, my background's coming out, and I'm just saying that's my personal interest in that particular issue. That tells you how broad the issue is. Free speech has been a major issue on public campuses for ages, for all kinds of reasons. But it also meant over time, and this was after I was off out of the campus scene and I was in the classroom by this time as a professor, I mean, it also became uh, this question of how legitimately do you give room for socially contemptible language? Uh, we are, we're not going to accept Nazi, adv, uh, you know, advocates of Nazism or fascism or things like that. Uh, we're not going to want somebody up there having a Ku Klux Klan rally or something like that. Uh, on a on a public campus. So how do you give room for socially contemptible language, but then recognize that sometimes the language itself is contemptible because of its relationship with action, with, you know, the term that's usually used for that is incitement. There is a difference, for example, between criticizing the government or doing investigative reporting about corruption in the mayor's office. There's a big difference between that and then promoting some kind of insurrection or uprising. We're going to gather a mob to take back what the mayor has stolen from the people, uh, you know, and so on. There's, there is a difference between those two things. I acknowledge it. It's pretty hard to define that difference. I get it that there are laws that define it and there are lawyers who would say, oh, I can define it easily, but morally and realistically, it is difficult to know exactly where you draw that line. At what point are you are you just feeding red meat to a mob and saying what's in your conscience? And at what point does that red meat become a fuse that you're lighting so that a bomb will go off somewhere? Uh, it is hard. Even, I mean, historically, when we've tried people who we believed were responsible for inciting things, including Nazi leaders, literally Nazi leaders at Nuremberg. When we tried leaders like that, whose principal contribution to the Nazi movement was publication and speaking and so on, it's really hard to draw a solid line from someone's speech, no matter how directly it is inciting this behavior. It's really hard to draw a straight line from that through someone else's thought processes to the point where they're actually doing the thing that's in writing or in speech. So it creates all kinds of burdens when you want to create that connection, when you want to understand that connection. But it does lead, so you can hear how this idea of protecting free speech leads to the, the dilemma that we're talking about right now. And, and the dilemma comes out in a couple of ways. One way is, like I was mentioning a moment ago, student psyches, just the, the, the mental health of students. Students who on one side feel oppressed by criticism. They're attacking my people. They're attacking me. They're making me unsafe because of the things that they're saying and so on. And I don't feel secure when I'm hearing people say words like that. Those are real expressions. And by the way, if you're saying to yourself, well, it's just because this generation is a bunch of ninnies and they just need to develop a backbone and you need to get past that. You need to figure out. And, and you, if you're my age, I'm 60. If you're my age or anywhere in my range, then you just need to come to grips with the reality that the expectation of 20-year-olds today about the space within which their psyche should be allowed to develop is different than the expectation that you had. 
and it's not going back. So you can wish that you could push the genie back in the bottle, but you're not going to. And I'm not sure it's such a bad thing, by the way. So that's a different discussion, different day. Just I'll get off my soapbox here for a second. That soapbox. I'm going to step from that soapbox back onto this soapbox. The point is, it leads to a dilemma regarding student psyches. On the one hand, that side, students who feel oppressed by the criticism. And then on the other side, students who feel, and I've heard both of these, students who feel oppressed because they have to walk on eggshells. It's like, I can't say anything. I have to know the magic language so that I can speak without having offended someone who then goes to you know, some office and tells somebody who then says to me that I'm now an oppressor of some kind and so on. Those two groups do exist. And I think both of those groups exist innocuously. I, I know there are, there are people in both groups who exist and they are trying to create harm. I know that. I, I'm not naive about the reality that some people are ill-motivated but most are not. They're just trying to figure out how to navigate so that they can be true to their conscience, but also be safe, you know, and and not be in a position where they themselves are made more vulnerable. So those two sides, you can hear the dilemma in terms of student psyches, but also, and I'm talking about it in terms of campuses right now, it's also true in terms of legitimate safety and rights, like the real ability to express your rights on one side and the real ability to be safe on the other side. Because you have students who are endangered by hate speech, by rhetoric that's inviting or maybe even inciting animosity or direct action against other students, even if it's not specifically aimed at them. You know, because if you identify a group and you tell people that group is the threat, then you are inviting people to consider doing something about the threat and then extending that group to the individuals who happen to be on your campus and reflect some of the characteristics of that group as well. That's a, that's a reality. Students can be endangered by that kind of hate speech. And on the other side, the, the, the other half of the dilemma, students who are prevented from speaking freely, even, and this crushes me, even in the very classrooms where their ideas, whether good or bad, could ideally be explored and refined and corrected. But instead, they sit with, they sit on their hands, they sit on their tongues, and they don't say anything because they're afraid they're going to get in trouble if they say this idea, if they communicate this idea. A lot of times in my classes, I will say to students, this is a free speech zone. And it's a safe zone. You can say whatever you want to say, and you can just be trying out your ideas because I don't want you to keep the strongest ideas you have secret because you're afraid of what will happen if you say them because those ideas are the ones you need to figure out whether have legitimacy or not. And if they don't, we want to take them down now, not later. We want you to understand where where those ideas would actually lead and why it's so important to speak freely about them. That, that reality, that dilemma, and this side of it, where you're not able to speak freely about things that need to be discussed so that you can put the right boundaries up, put the right parameters up, and for them to make sense to the person, not just say, by force of law, if you say that, I'm going to put you in jail. That doesn't bring about any good results. And you can imagine why I'm so concerned about the censorship movement 
that's going on among legislatures right now around the country. It's absurd if you think that's going to bring the result, even the result that you want. Uh, anyway, the point is, students who are prevented from speaking freely about those things are at a disadvantage. And I experienced this uh, at uh, here at Criswell College when I was first a professor, not, not in the sense of some limitation in the classroom or something like that, I don't mean that, but I experienced the reality of where professors lived in fear when I taught Huck Finn. I had another teacher who had taught a similar or related discipline at that time uh, ask me a question about what books I was using in this particular course on American culture. And I said, well, one of the books we read is Huck Finn because it's such a pivotal novel in American history. And, and so I, you know, I, I said, oh, Huck Finn. And the other professor was just shocked. I mean, I, she opened her mouth and her eyes were wide. And she said, how on earth do you get by with that? I mean, just the use of the N-word in the book, it's, I've just never been able to do it without getting into immediate trouble by doing it and so on. And, you know, I just said, look, this is, this is what I do. First of all, I used a downloaded, uh, I, you know, I used this library, the Gutenberg Project, uh, to download texts and make them freely available to the students so they can just download them as well, right? And so I, I did something Gutenberg hates, uh, and I'm saying it here on an episode, so hopefully I won't get in trouble for it, but it's the reality. I went through and I just used the search function in Word, you know, and found everywhere the N-word was used in the book, and I put an asterisk next to it. I put in asterisk instead of that word. And the students know what the word is. It's not like they haven't heard it before. And then I tell them before they read it. Now it uses this word. But I also gave them some readings from Mark Twain and blah, 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 and explained he hated the prejudice, even that was implied by that word. You could tell by the way he used it in an article uh, about a time that a, a man had been lynched in the South. And he used a mocking tone, as Mark Twain only knows how to do, uh, that 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 uh, really belittled the South for the nobility with which they defended white womanhood and lynched this person. And he used that word derogatorily about the Southerners who were using it. So I, you know, so I explained it to make the point, and this is back in the mid-19th century. So I explained it to the to the students to the point of having to say, look, the word is used, but he's using it to make the point that there is a prejudice built into what's going on in the interactions between Huck Finn and the society and uh, Jim and all the things that he's having to decide morally about what he's going to do and so on. My point in saying all of that is her concern was legitimate. She had been rebuffed for using a book that brought up concepts that were risky, that created a vulnerability for a group that really is vulnerable and that does face the consequences of hate speech sometimes. And at the same time, you know, uh, groups that want to use those terms and want to be want their speech to be protected, but are are legitimately ought to be limited. You shouldn't just be able to run around and use a term like that. And so, what I ended up doing was providing trigger warnings for students. And I know people make fun of that. Oh, you're going to give a trigger warning for this and a trigger warning for that. I just don't find it a harmful thing to say to students, hey. If you've ever been sexually assaulted when you read this work, it may be a problem for you. And so you, let me know. If you can't read it, that's okay. Just don't read it. But there is a sexual assault in here and so on. Or if it's about race or if it's about something else, I, I what's the harm in giving someone an option so that they have an awareness of what they're getting into if they want to get into it or don't? So there, are, but you know what, you know what ends up happening instead? Most professors, not, and I'm saying most, it's not like I've taken a survey but that I know, 
most professors are not going to want to get into that fight. And so when you find out that something might cause a, a problem, might create a conflict, you just pull it from the curriculum. You just don't talk about it. <laughs> what does that do to higher ed? What, what on earth are we doing? Uh, the whole point of us existing is to go right into the middle of the minefield and work our way through it and, and provide leaders who have a competence to think about the most difficult things and come out on the other side with either some answers or at least the right questions to lead towards some answers, which is pretty much all I ever do in any episode, just trying to provide enough questions that somebody will come up with an answer somewhere. Anyway, there are whole university systems now that are being prevented from addressing topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion on the basis of their own expertise about those things because some legislature's decision to, I don't know, placate or rouse their base or to act in the interest of a group they see as being unduly oppressed by speech restrictions. Both of those can be true, by the way. They can be motivated by both. Do you hear what I'm saying? A legislature that's doing something I despise. Censorship, especially at the university level, I just find absurd. I do not like it at all. Is all the equivocation out of my sentences now? You hear what I'm saying? And yet I can still say, I understand that on the negative side, I can say they're just doing that to placate or rouse their base. And I don't think I'm wrong, by the way. But at the same time, I can acknowledge that in some ways, what they're doing is acting in the interest of a group. It's not an oppressed group. It's an advantageous group. It's a group that's maintaining the structures of current society. But still, you can still hear the one-sidedness of my thinking on this. But still, they are acting in the interest of a group they believe is being unduly oppressed by speech restrictions. And we do care about free speech in our country. So I can understand that. Even if I disagree with the action of the censorship, I can understand where they're coming from, and that's important. So, you know, it reflects other issues in our contemporary culture. Sex abuse issue is the same way. You know, the Me Too movement finally gave survivors a voice and some power to seek restitution of some kind or at least some kind of relief from the history that they were facing otherwise. But I also recognize on the other side, it doesn't mean no one has ever been falsely accused of abuse. I get that. So what we end up with, though, is older people like me, because they remember how things were. Now, this is not me. I don't hold this view. But there are people who are in my generation who who take this way because they remember how things used to be. They just think younger advocates are soft and gullible and naive. I read a guy yesterday who was saying that on social media. They just believe everything they hear and who wish we could just get back to the way things were. But if you just think about that phrase, the way things were, is only something you want to go back to if your place in that way was already secure and prospering and powerful and comfortable. But that's only you. There is that other half of the rule of law equation, which are the vulnerable groups. So here's the thing. I'll close with this. The fundamental moral ideal that Christians ought to have in mind, and I will say it on both sides, that we advocate for those who don't have power. This is clear. That we advocate for widows, orphans, and strangers in Scripture. But what does that mean? that we recognize that in a two-party democratic system, which 
inherently over time is going to tilt toward governmental expansion. That's just the nature of society. Again, you protect the structures that are there. The protections continue to grow. The structures continue to grow. And therefore, the protections grow even more. It's just the nature of a society. The longer it lasts, the more structured, the more defended and protected it will become. So those who are being oppressed can shift dramatically because we have a two-party democratic system. Those who are being oppressed can shift dramatically from one administration to the next. You know, in one administration, it's the vulnerable populations who are feeling oppressed. In the very next administration, it's the powerful who are feeling oppressed by the government who's coming after them and trying to take away their institutions and so on. I'm watching that happen right now in higher ed. The response of higher ed to a Trump administration and then to a Biden administration is a perfect demonstration of this. There is neither of those administrations made everybody happy and say, oh, this is going to be safe and it's just going to make everything great again. Of any, uh, neither administration has done that. It's just different groups that feel threatened under the two different administrations. So there is a reality built into this because of our two-party system. So it doesn't, this is the thing. We don't have to make the powerful into victims, but it can, and we don't need to do that. We ought to be more cautious about that. It does mean that we ought to do things within the bounds of our ultimate goal, which is equal protection under the law for everyone, to do things justly, applying as much equality as we can muster to the entire system and to each group and individual within the system. So what we're trying to do, and this is built into Christian values, what we're trying to do every generation and iteration is lift the oppressed out of their vulnerability without converting them into the next iteration of oppressors. Israel was oppressed in Egypt. I'm talking thousands of years ago, not talking in the last 50 years. I'm talking, you know, Moses. Israel was oppressed in Egypt. And then they became the oppressors of the strangers who were living among them, which is why God corrects them about it constantly, and it's the core of Jesus' ministry, serving the Gentiles and so on who are among them, the outcasts who are among them. The conclusion for us is that we do keep every person in our purview as someone who's worthy of hearing and understanding, even when I think, even when they are catastrophically and indefensibly wrong. Treating someone as a person doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Respecting someone as a person doesn't mean you even have to respect their position or their actions. We demonstrate that every time we have a trial for a murderer. We are treating that person with the respect that says, before we execute them, we give them a fair trial. They get a lawyer and so on. We do that every time. We did it at Nuremberg. We do it with everyone. At Nuremberg, they had to write new laws to comprehend the evil that had been perpetrated, and yet they put the defendants on trial and gave them lawyers and fed them while they were in the jail and took care of them because they knew that you have to treat every human being as a person with respect or you lose the whole nature of what a society has to be. If they can do those things out of respect for humanity, we can surely be respectful, even of those who are throwing inflammatory rhetoric against people whose interests we've chosen to share. And I I hear a lot of that these days. But most importantly, out of the two things I would say in my conclusion, one, treat everybody with respect, equal protection of the law. Most importantly, 
we always first have to ask how we use our power, not for ourselves as believers, but for the sake of those who do not have their own. This is what makes American Christianity tricky because Christians in America have had so much power. And it's, it's so in contrast to Christian history. Uh, we, don't, we don't know exactly how to balance it out. So we might, be in you, we might be enticed to use our power simply to protect our power. Because, you know, we have good values and we, you know, we have all these good things that we're bringing to the society and building. And a lot of that's true. But even so, even when it comes to how Christians interact politically and socially in the world, our first question is whether we are using our power the way Jesus used his. With all the dilemmas and conflicts of interest and rights that emerge, we can still ensure that we're always asking this primary question, that we're always acting first in the interest of others and last in the interest of ourselves. This is the essential characteristic of people who follow what Jesus actually did, laying down his life for the sake of the very people who were taking it from him. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.